Hello, and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Pi. And I'm your co-host, Lulu. So before we dive into the episode, is there anything that you've been into or up to that you would like to tell our listeners about, Lulu? Well, it has been kind of a while since we last recorded, but I do have a couple things that I'd like to highlight. One is that I recently read the book Bad Things Happen Here by Rebecca Barrow, which was very exciting. Rebecca Barrow is actually one of my favorite authors who writes like young adult contemporary coming of age stories. But Bad Things Happen Here is an upcoming thriller by her and we got an advanced review copy, which was super exciting. Bad Things Happen Here is about a girl who lives on a rich exclusive island that is plagued by a mysterious string of deaths, all of girls. And when the main character's best friend and her sister both fall victim and die very mysteriously, the main character kind of decides to get to the bottom of it and investigate what could be behind their deaths. I really enjoyed it. It was very atmospheric and emotional. I liked the main character a lot. We are planning on doing an episode on thrillers a little bit down the line. So if you want to hear more about spooky islands and tragic death, you can kind of stay tuned for that. But I really enjoyed that. It was great. I love seeing authors kind of hop genres, but really succeed at that. I also read this review copy and I can definitely second that it was a great read. It was really a twisty and the main character was super compelling. And I really hope Rebecca Barrow writes more thrillers in the future. I also wanted to recover from my brain being steamrolled by academia. So I turned to a romance novel to help me recover. And I read The Duchess War by Courtney Milan, which is a historical romance novel about a duke and a woman with a mysterious past who fall in love despite a lot of obstacles and scandal and tragic pasts. I enjoyed it a lot. The romance was very good. I really thought the main characters were fantastic leads and the development of their relationship was very realistic and like we love some emotional vulnerability and character growth. So it was was definitely a good antidote to my brain being steamrolled by academia. I would definitely recommend that. I've also just been kind of on an Irish mythology and history kick lately. So like all of the books on the stack next to my bed have titles like Druids, a very short introduction by Very Cunliffe and stuff like that. So if you want to know about Druids, boy, do I have that information in my brain now. And also to kind of wrap it up, I recently finished watching the TV show Only Murders in the Building, which is a mystery TV show about three residents of a very swanky New York apartment complex who decide to investigate the mysterious death of one of their neighbors. It was very compelling and also pretty funny, but I'm a little annoyed at it because it ended on a very blatant cliffhanger. I'm the kind of person who doesn't like blatant cliffhangers because I feel like I should be invested enough in your story to want to continue to watch it without like a sudden twist. So whenever media does that, I'm like, okay, but I will be watching the second season. So I, I guess they got me, but I mostly enjoyed that. Is there anything else that you want to highlight before we start talking about the actual topic of this episode, Pi? Well, like you said, it's been kind of a while since we recorded an episode because we've both been really busy. So I have a, I've had a lot of time to read and watch things. I watched the uh, ice skating sports anime, Yuri on Ice, with my friends. We had been watching the Winter Olympics together and then that ended. And we were like, wait, we still need some more ice skating content in our lives. So we went and watched that and it was really cute and funny and also gay. And it was just like, there's a lot of good ice skating content and I enjoyed the characters. So I can see why it has so many fans. 
Then I read the really funny novel To Say Nothing of the Dog by Connie Willis, which is a comedy time travel book about a scholar time traveler who is sent back to Victorian times to fix a mistake made by another time traveler and ends up getting wrapped up in like a whole bunch of drama. And it was just like, it was super funny. I would just like be sitting there like, laughing to myself while I read because of like all the improbable situations that the main character ended up in and it was a great read. I have not read a ton of things by Connie Willis but I loved that so I'll definitely check out more by her. And then to switch tones entirely I read the horror novel The Bone Key by Sarah Monette which is a series of short stories following an extremely introverted museum archivist called Kyle Murchison Booth, who really just wants to be left alone by everyone and everything, but unfortunately keeps getting drawn into like horrible and creepy paranormal situations. And I'm really not a big fan of horror, usually because I'm very easily scared, but I loved this. All of the ghost stories were like super unique and twisty and very frightening. And I enjoyed that the main character had some very realistic reactions to spooky things happening such as like screaming and slamming the door in the face of a ghost so I liked that a lot and I will like maybe have to go read more horror now because I liked it so much and then I watched two very different but both extremely good movies I watched the movie Turning Red which is about a middle school girl who lives in Toronto who turns into a giant red panda when she gets too emotional and I feel like like everyone under the sun has been talking about how this is like a really great and fun movie that's also a really accurate depiction of being a middle school girl but like they're all right I loved it it was amazing and it was just it was a great time and then I watched the new Batman movie which is imaginatively called The Batman and I'm, I'm not usually a big fan of like dark and gritty like noir superhero movies because I feel like they can often be kind of one note but I really liked this one the cast was really good the cinematography was great like the plot kept me glued to my seat so like I guess I am in fact a Batman fan now like I guess I am this is just what I am now so those were what I've been into which was all pretty different but good I hate to break it to you, but I think you've been a Batman fan for a couple of months because you fully and single-handedly convinced me to have an entire episode on Batman under the Red Hood, even though I knew nothing about Jason Todd or really anything about Batman comics. So I think you are already a Batman fan. I hate to break it to you. But but under the Red Hood is a Jason Todd story, and Jason Todd is not in the Batman, and I still enjoyed it. So I think this does make me like an actual Batman fan now. Okay, fair. Anyway, we are not here to talk about the Batman, though who knows, maybe we will at some future point. We are actually here to talk about Arcane, which is an animated Netflix show based on the video game League of Legends. Full disclosure, we actually recorded this episode once before, but our audio hated us. And because we would like our listeners to actually be able to understand what we are saying, we are re-recording this episode, so fingers crossed it turns out okay the second time. So, like I said, Arcane is based on the video game League of Legends. Neither of us knew a darn thing about League of Legends before watching this show, but we sure did watch all of Arcane and enjoy it, mostly. So I kept hearing things about this show for several months before I actually watched it. And at first I wasn't really that interested in seeing it because I'm not a huge video game person. And I know absolutely nothing about League of Legends. Like everything that I know about League of Legends, I learned only because I watched the show. But eventually I saw so many people being like, this is really good. You can watch it without having understood the video game at all. I decided to give it a try. 
So I watched episode one and I was like, huh, this is pretty promising. And then I watched episode two and I was like, wow, okay, we're really going somewhere. This is pretty compelling. And then I watched episode three and I was like, I am never thinking about any other piece of media ever again. So that's just kind of how it went for me. I have also had a pretty successful track record with watching shows based off of video games that I've never played because I watched and enjoyed Castlevania. So I did figure I'd eventually give this a go. And I'm glad that I did because it kind of consumed my entire brain while I was watching it and then for several weeks afterwards. I think I remember you texting me around the time you watched episode two. It feels like I'm standing on a cliff high above a sea of obsession and I'm about to dive in head first. So that's the kind of feeling you were having while watching this TV show. That does sound like something I would have texted you while I was watching that, yeah. Arcane is technically a prequel to the video game, I think, but that's pretty much all I know about it. So we're not really going to talk about Arcane as an adaptation of League of Legends much in this episode, just because neither of us really know anything about League of Legends. We're going to focus more on the story and characters and world as kind of a standalone TV show, because that's how we both understand it as a piece of media. Anyway, the basic pitch of Arcane is that it's about two sisters who end up on different sides of a divided city where magic and science are kind of intertwining and there's a lot of very tight class divides and corruption and thieves and that kind of stuff. I personally think this show is great because it caters to both of us in that for Pi, there are nerds behaving badly, which is an entire category of character that we will maybe discuss further. And for me, there are cool women fighting things. And then for both of us, there's very twisty and interesting and often tragic familial dynamics that are really driving this show. I feel like that about sums it up, yeah. We're also going to be talking about the whole season of TV, so spoilers will definitely abound. If you would like to pause this episode and watch all of Arcane, you can do that, or you can keep listening and hear all of our thoughts on a TV show you never watched. So I feel like we should probably do like a general rundown of both the plot and the characters before getting too in-depth because there is kind of a lot going on in this show. Yeah, that's a good idea. The show consists of three three-episode arcs and it's set in Piltover slash Zaun, two sections of a city that is so divided that it might as well be two entirely different cities. And in the upper levels of Piltover, citizens live a life of progress and privilege and freedom but in the lower levels of Zaun, citizens live a life of poverty and illness and crime. And in the very first arc of the show, we're introduced to a pair of sisters called Vi and Powder. Powder later grows up to go by the name Jinx, but we'll call her Powder for this time. And they live in Zaun and are the adopted daughters of a very powerful crime lord, Vander, who keeps order in the Undercity, which is what they largely call Zaun in this TV show. Right away, I thought this was a really interesting setup for some characters because unlike a lot of pieces of media about people who are raised by a crime lord, Vander is actually a really good father who largely wants what is best for by Powder Zown and its people, which I thought was a kind of interesting and unique change from the usual setup. And I just liked it a lot. Vander's relationship with Vi and Powder um, also has like a kind of interesting beginning because as a young man, he began a, a rebellion against Piltover that led to the deaths of their parents. And so feeling responsible for that, he adopted them and decided to dedicate himself to keeping the peace. So at the beginning, of the TV show were introduced to these characters who had a really tragic backstory, but like are in a relatively stable part of their childhood. But there's kind of this sense that like everything around them is constantly shifting and unstable and the relationship between these two cities can like very quickly become tense. So it's like 
I don't know, I just find it interesting because Vander is like, he is a genuinely good father, but there's also so much going on in the world that he can't protect them from. And kind of the plot of the show is like the reality of the city, like kind of crashing down on Vi and Powder. Exactly. Vander is a largely good person who genuinely loves Vi and Powder, but that doesn't mean he can protect them from the entire city. And as tensions rise between the Undercity and the Overcity, and then massive tragedy strikes, Vi and Powder end up on opposing sides of a conflict that's basically tearing the city apart. There's also a big time skip after the first three episodes. So at the beginning of the show is kind of almost an extended prologue that sets up the characters and the conflicts before kind of leaping into the proper story. But don't worry, the first three episodes are still very compelling in their own right. Also, as kind of a side note, I feel like the name Zaun isn't actually used that much in the show because Zaun as an established cohesive political entity kind of comes into being over the course of the show. I think it might be sort of more established in the video game, but they largely call Zaun the Undercity in this because it's physically and politically and economically lower than Piltover. Yeah, they are very much separate places. There's like a huge contrast between the design of Piltover and the Undercity with one of them being like this privileged, beautiful, bright place. And then the Undercity is like this dark, dangerous, like underbelly of the world full of crime. So they're obviously quite separate. The idea of Zaun slash the Undercity as like a separate political entity is something that emerges over the course of the show. And I think they're obviously very separate. And the Undercity on the surface level appears to be the worst, more dangerous, most corrupt part of the city. But I think over the course of the show, you kind of see some very ugly layers of Piltover peeled away where there is kind of corruption and consolidation of power in hands that don't deserve it. So I think it's quite interesting the way that this setup is used to sort of explore corruption and abuse of power and stuff like that. So the show opens with Vi leading a failed heist in the Overcity to break into a laboratory. And as someone who personally really enjoys heist stories, I was immediately drawn into that part of the story. But then it introduces another plot line about the scientist, Jace Tallis, who worked in the laboratory. And it turns out he was doing very sketchy band stuff, trying to combine magic and science. And I love when stories do that. I really enjoy media that's not just like, okay, well, science fiction and fantasy are two ends of the spectrum and you can't have them in the same story. I think it's fun to just kind of mix them up. So I was on board as soon as that part was really introduced. And Arcane is a very city-wide story because there is storylines and characters that you follow from like the ruling council of Piltover to the slums of Zaun, but they're all largely drawn together by the pair of sisters you're introduced to in the first two episodes because they end up in very different parts of the city doing very different things. Yeah, Vi and Powder were born and raised in the Undercity, as are a lot of the other characters that we'll talk about, like Vander, Silco, Echo, and Victor. But there's also a lot of characters from Piltover, like Caitlin, Chase, and Mel. Basically, it's about the oppression of the lower classes and class warfare and all that fun stuff, but it's also about the combination of magic and technology, and also has one of the best tragic narratives that I've ever encountered in fiction. I think what made this TV show really stick in my brain the way that it did is how amazingly well done the tragic narrative arc of the characters is, especially Vine Powder, but also shout out to Victor. 
sometimes when I'm reading a book or watching a TV show, I can tell that the characters are being made to do certain things in order to fit the overall narrative arc the author has planned, not necessarily because it's something they could actually do. Arcane is pretty much the Arcane is pretty much the exact opposite. It does an astoundingly good job of showing you the flaws and wants and conflicts within each character that drives them to act in a particular way and make certain decisions. So when their actions do eventually lead to a tragic narrative, for example, there's a plotline pretty early on where Powder interferes in a rescue mission to try and help using a homemade explosive with awful results. And it feels like a very natural, understandable progression of these characters. So you're kind of just like left screaming, no, how could things have turned out this way? While also knowing there's like no other way things could have gone because of who these characters are. Exactly. I really agree with that. This isn't just a story about fun combinations of magic and science or cool cityscapes. It, it really feels like it's a story driven by characters and in particular their flaws. And I really want to get to talking about those specific characters, but maybe we should just talk, continue sort of talking about more general stuff before we dive more deeply into that. So I just want to say that the animation in this show is fantastic, especially character expressions and settings. Both the Overcity and the Undercity are, are really, really well done. It's amazing. Honestly, some of the best animation that I've ever seen. I've seen some of the character designs from the video game, and uh, I mean, no offense to League of Legends fans, but they're bad. The ones in the show are much better. They look like actual people, and they have, like, individual, like, faces and, like, outfits and stuff, but it's just, it's really good because it does such a good job of, like, building up the world and the characters through the animation. Whereas I'm not sure that the original video game did that as much from what I can see. Okay, well, I'm not going to dunk on League of Legends because this isn't a League of Legends podcast. But I mean, I do appreciate that they sort of tweaked some of the character designs to make them kind of more realistic, like characters who are grounded in a real world. Vi, for instance, is very good at punching things and fighting things and the kind of character who thinks with her fists. And in the video game, she kind of looks like Ramona Flowers from Scott Pilgrim, honestly, but in the TV show, she is like genuinely muscled and like looks like someone who has spent her life fighting. So I feel like what they did was kind of ground the characters in the setting because they're not just sort of these characters you play, like they exist in this story. There's just so much good animation in this show. It's all very good, especially the way that characters age and evolve over the course of the show, but are always very recognizably the same person. There's so much detail and color in every shot. I really loved it. And you're right, they've done a really good job with the character expressions and character design. Like there's one scene in the climax where Jinx's expression turns from kind of sad and hopeful to malicious in about the span of a second. And the progression is done so well. Like you can see the transition like just by looking at her eyes. And it's true that it's really, um, good with like kind of consistent character signs because we mentioned there's a time skip. So a lot of characters who are like children or young teens in the beginning of the show are reintroduced as adults and they have like different character signs but are still kind of recognizably the same person. Like there's a character called Echo who's reintroduced as an adult and he's kind of different looking but like obviously the same person. Or Jinx has like a very drastic change but you can still kind of understand like who this character is and how like she's changed over time. The fight scenes are also fantastic. There's one pretty late in the show between the characters of Jinx and Echo and like the animation style kind of changes to like this really stylized way of showing the fight. And it's just like super cool. And I just really enjoyed all the fight scenes very much. They were really good. I also feel like what I particularly admired about the fight scenes in this is that 
they actively drive the story and shape the characters instead of just being an excuse for someone to go, wow, cool fantasy weapon, or like, sick, that was such a cool move. I feel like there's always a very strong sense of emotional stakes behind them. And it's not just like, this is a fight scene for the sake of being a fight scene. They feel very integrated into the story and the characters and what people want. Yeah, I definitely agree. The fight scenes don't feel like they exist to be just like, look at this cool fight scene and everyone's cool abilities, but they're actually kind of there to like drive forward the plot and show you something about the story. There's also an interesting refusal to totally glamorize the fights. Like, for example, there's one fight scene early on where Vi takes on some villains after her adoptive father is kidnapped by his nemesis Silco and it's a very emotional fight because Vi at this point is a teenager and she's facing down Silco's henchmen and trying to defeat them to keep Vander safe and like she's punching bad guys and it's a cool scene but it's also one that we like understand the character's fear and anxiety in because it constantly cut back it constantly cuts back to Vander's face and we can see that like he's really afraid and angry that he can't protect his daughter because he's been trapped. Or the fight scene between Echo and Jinx, who are two characters that were friends as children but grew up to be enemies. And so like, as soon as the fight starts, you're like, oh yeah, this is gonna be so cool. Can't wait to see these two awesome fighters go toe to toe. And then it immediately flashes back to the two of them play fighting as children, reminding you that they're both still kids really. And like, it's an awful tragedy that these two friends have been driven to fight each other. And it's just like, I love the way the fight scenes in the show are not just like, look at this awesome thing happen. It's more like, what can this fight scene show you about the characters in it? Also, the setting of the city is just very cool. It's kind of fantasy steampunk and the settings in the backgrounds are always very gorgeous and well animated. Maybe not gorgeous when they're in the undercity, but they're always very like evocative, no matter which part of the city they're in. And I just thought that was great because it is a story that is so grounded in the setting and this one particular location. Like we don't ever go outside of the city except for some flashbacks, but it works very well because it feels so expansive and well animated. I think this might be my favorite piece of animated animated media that I've watched since Into the Spider-Verse, which is very high praise because Into the Spider-Verse is like my favorite movie of all time. That is very high praise, especially since Into the Spider-Verse is just like, irreplaceable as like top best animated movie but yes this was the animation and this was really well done and also I assume that it also works on another level because it's based off of a video game whereas it might not really work as well in live action because there's just certain character designs and styles of fighting that might not translate to live action so I think having it be animated worked really well because it's like something can be animated and not be aimed at kids and I think Arcane is a good example of that. Yeah, I definitely agree with the idea that animation is not like a lesser form of media than live action. I don't really think this would work in live action because the way things are stylized works very well, but would definitely not if they were trying to make everyone looking look super grounded and realistic. No, definitely not. I mean, Jinx has naturally blue hair and ridiculously long braids, and that works in animation, but I think it would look kind of silly if you tried to do it in live action. Yeah, or like Vi has pink hair, or like they're like weird furry animals that are like also people in the city. And none of that would work in live action, but it works great in animation. So I think we should get on to talking about the characters because the characters are what really drives this show and what we found so compelling about it. Like you said, this show is extremely driven by characters and their relationships, often in very tragic and destructive ways that feel, I would say, both inevitable, but also emotionally devastating 
in that you're like, well, it couldn't have gone any other way, really, but I still wish it had gone differently. And even though it's set in a fantasy world, I feel like it is a story very shaped by characters and not magic. Like, a lot of fantasy stories will use a magical object to propel the story forward. And like, you know, Lord of the Rings did it, so it's not exactly an unsuccessful mode of story. But Arcane feels like a very character-driven story. There is kind of magical technology that characters are competing over, which they call Hextech, but is also known as Arcane, which is like, you know, the word for magic, so title drop. Anyway, so characters are kind of trying to get a hold of this new magical resource, and that does sort of drive the plot forward, but it feels like it's much more driven by the characters rather than the existence of magic. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't feel like the entire plot is shaped by this magical object. It's shaped by like the character's reactions to it, which is very enjoyable. And it's also, like you said, it's, it's so tragic because you really want the character arcs and the decisions to go a different way, but they also feel so natural in the decisions the characters do make. It's like a line of dominoes, like you push one thing and then like suddenly everything is heading towards this conclusion and there's really no other way that it could have gone. Kind of the main protagonist of the show, though it is also sort of an ensemble, I would say is Vi. And like we said, she's a very punchy girl. She has pink hair. She is Powder slash Jinx's older sister. And they were raised by Vander after their parents were killed by Piltover enforcers during a rebellion. <laughs> Pi's second note here is that she is definitely a lesbian. That is true, but maybe we should get into that more after we discuss her love interest. <laughs> Yes, I just, I do think that there is no other way to explain Vi's interactions with the character of Caitlyn. Otherwise, Caitlyn is like this upper class Piltover woman who becomes an enforcer and is like kind of naive, but teams up with Vi to try to solve some mysteries. And like, I just think their relationship has a lot of romantic tension in it. Like at one point, Vi explicitly calls Caitlyn hot. And they just like generally have kind of like this romantic tension that I think is kind of like you watch the characters interact and you're like, so like they're into each other, right? Like there's no other way to explain this scene and like how it's going. It kind of feels like a funny, it's like speed running enemies to lovers because Caitlyn is from the upper levels of Piltover and Vi is from the Undercity and they clash at first, even while they're working on a common cause and they, like they come to find common ground. And like, it's very enjoyable character dynamic, but it also definitely feels like these are two characters who are like into each other. Oh, I mean, I definitely agree. I think we might see that explored more in season two after things happen and they've interacted. But yes, I definitely agree. There isn't really a ton of romance in this show. And oftentimes things drive characters apart when they could have been together. But yeah, I do. I definitely do think that there was something between Kate and Vi, but maybe we should save that for a little bit later. <laughs> yeah, so there are a lot of extremely intelligent characters in this show, but Vi's reaction to most situations that she's in is can I punch this? Which honestly is valid of her. I like that she's just like this really punchy, like direct character who has like goals and is going to accomplish them. I also find her guilt over failing and abandoning her sister at the end of act one to be really compelling. It's kind of the motivation that drives her throughout act throughout acts two and three, that during a moment of like grief and anger, she left her sister and then was forcibly separated. And she kind of feels like she has abandoned powder and needs to like make it up to her 
and find her way back to her sister. And I just, I really liked that this show was so driven by a sister relationship because I feel like, no offense, a lot of media is very romance centric and I do enjoy romance, but also sometimes you want media that is focused around a different kind of relationship. So I really liked that this was a show where familial relationships play a really big role and they're also complicated familial relationships. Agreed. Like Vi loves her sister and wants to be reunited with her, but she also feels an immense amount of guilt for the fact that she left her sister behind and then she gets put in prison and isn't able to go find her sister again. And I just feel like family relationships are a really good basis for shaping characters and motivating them because it's the kind of thing where even if these characters have a complicated or not positive relationship, it's always going to be something that sort of affected their growth and motivations. So yes, I agree. Obviously, this is a podcast hosted by a pair of sisters, so we enjoy it when sisters are highlighted in media. But um, even though, you know, we did enjoy Kate and Vi's interactions, I also really appreciated that Vi as a character is very much driven by her love for her sister and also her desire to kind of make up for that one moment when she let her sister down. It's very compelling and also very complicated considering the time that Vi was in jail was not exactly a good one for powder. Yeah, I just really loved the tragedy of Vi spending the whole first season of the show like trying desperately to make up for this single moment where she abandoned her sister, but she can't really because they've both changed so much that they're completely different people since this moment happened. Like they can't go back and fix things because of all the changes that have occurred. It's just like, it's so sad, but also like really understandable because like she wants to go back to this moment and fix it, but she can't. I also really enjoyed the part of the show where she was running around the Undercity with Caitlin on like their gay little detective mission like bantering it was just it was fun it is fun i feel like the dynamic of characters who cannot stand each other but have to get along and work on a common cause for plot reasons is really fun to watch even if having to work with people you hate in real life is not fun vi and kate's relationship of kind of starting off completely at odds and then slowly finding some common ground and vulnerability between the two of them while they're also like running around the undercity trying to do detective work i enjoyed that part of the show Unrelated, but I feel like this show implies that characters can have naturally pink or blue hair because Jinx and Caitlyn both have blue hair and Vi has pink hair and her hair is still pink even after being in prison for years and I assume that they would not be getting her hair dye there. I don't know if this is like an established part of the League of Legends lore, but it was a little bit funny. I think it must be something from the video games that's just not explained here because well, I think this this show did a good job of being accessible to people who have never played League of Legends. There are certain things about the world that just go completely unexplained, like the fact that some people have naturally occurring hair that is like not what we think of as a natural hair color, but also the fact that there's kind of these little furry animal creatures who are running around and are like sentient and intelligent, and one of them is a genius scientist who's on the Council of Piltover and has been alive for hundreds of years, and we never really find out what his deal is, just that he's there and he's knee-high and very furry. And I was like, I mean, honestly, I'm fine with being dumped into fantasy world with no explanation, but it was funny to me that they explained so about so much about this show, but just like not very obvious things about characters' appearances. It's just like, yeah, roll with it. She has pink hair. Roll with it. He is a small, furry animal creature. Yeah, so Vi's whole thing is that she abandons her sister and then is captured and put in prison because being a member of the Undercity sucks. And after she gets out, she really just wants to find her sister and kind of atone for having abandoned her. But 
her sister has changed a lot during the time that she's in prison and that leads to some problems so Vi's sister is Powder, aka Jinx, and to be clear, Powder is the name that she goes by as a kid when she's being raised by Vander, and after Vi abandons her, or so she thinks, like she was actually put in prison, she is then taken in by Vander's nemesis, a crime lord called Silco, and she starts going by the name Jinx instead. I feel like probably... I feel like Jinx is one of the most fascinating characters on the show, to me at least, simply because of the huge shift that her character goes through from act one to act two and three. Agreed. She goes through a lot on this show, and most of it is really bad. She starts off as this really innocent little kid who tags along with Vi's gang and always seems to accidentally cause problems for them despite trying to help, and is like very constantly trying to prove herself to both her sister and Vander's other adopted kids and her adopted father. But yeah, th- things do not go well for the nice child, which is unfortunate. She's also an inventor, although none of her inventions, specifically these bombs that she makes, ever seem to work. And so kind of the inciting incident that like drives Vi and Powder apart is that at the end of Act 1, Vander is kidnapped by his nemesis, Silco, that he has a very complicated history with that we'll get into later. But so he is kidnapped and Vi and her adoptive siblings, Milo and Clagger, go to rescue Vander, and they strictly tell Powder that she is not allowed to come along because she's too young and she doesn't have experience with this kind of thing. And she's just like, oh, it kind of messes up their plans. We see early on that she does kind of ruin the heist that they're planning. So Powder is explicitly told not to follow them, but she like can't hack being left behind. She wants to prove herself and be useful, like she wants to be one of the older kids. And so she tries to help using one of her bombs, which she has altered with material that she stole from Jace Talis's lab earlier. And she causes an explosion so huge that she kills Vander, Milo, and Clagger. And it's a really well done strategy because if she had not interfered in this rescue mission, they probably all would have lived and gotten away, but she thought she was helping and she just made everything worse. And so like this inciting incident of her accidentally killing three people is what leads to Vi temporarily abandoning her sister out of anger and grief, although she later regrets it. And Powder, who is like really traumatized and upset and is convinced that like everyone who ever loved her in the world has either died or left her, latches on to Silco. Like literally he is about to stab her and then she just like throws herself at him and starts crying and then he hugs her. It's kind of wild. And she ends up getting taken in by Silco and basically raised as his foster daughter. So in Acts 2 and 3, after the time skip, she is now a teenager and Silco's daughter. And she's very haunted by the death that she's caused and dies abandonment, but unfortunately has really bad coping mechanisms such as building large guns and killing people and developing an extremely dark sense of humor. So basically, Jinx starts out as a like, really innocent kid who just wants to like be noticed by her sister and the older kids and live up to what kind of person she wants to be. And she kind of ends up descending into villainy due to her trauma and anger at being abandoned and basically becomes Silco's daughter slash enforcer slash resident mad scientist in the attic, which is kind of a problem because that means that she's on the opposite side from a lot of characters in this show, including Vi, who wants to take down Silco. And so that is kind of the tragedy of Jinx. You obviously have a lot of thoughts on Jinx, which is fair because I think if anyone in this show really significantly changes over the course of it, it's definitely Jinx because she starts out as this very innocent little kid who just wants to help and then turns into someone who has blood on her hands and doesn't really know how 
to help and only really knows how to cause bad things. And it's it's just, it's sad to watch a character go from that over the course of the show. But it also, like you said, feels very inevitable because she is driven by the fact that she just really wants to prove herself. And that ultimately ends up causing the tragedy that leads to the deaths of almost everyone in her family and her sister leaving her. So it's very tragic, but it's very well done because you're like, well, yes, of course she blames herself for this. Of course she would descend into a really dark place because she tried to help once and it cost her everything. So yeah, it's it's a sad character arc, but a very tragic and interesting one. And one of the other characters, I guess we should sort of just sort of keep going down through the list of them. One of the other characters in this show is Jace Tallis, who, like we mentioned, is the scientist who owns a lab that Vi breaks into and steals some stuff from. And he becomes another character with his own kind of storyline over the course of the show because this is really a story set across the entire city. So we have Vi and Powder slash Jinx and their kind of tragic familial stuff. But we also have characters like Jace in the Overcity who have their own kind of political scheming and mad scientist things happening as well at the same time. So Jace is a university student from a rich family, but after his life was saved as a child by magic, he's kind of become fascinated with the intersection between science and magic, specifically using science to generate magic, which is kind of forbidden in Piltover because in the past, magic, aka arcane, has caused a lot of problems and deaths and tragedy. And so this is one of the things that you are not supposed to do, but he's just like so fascinated by the idea of it that he can't help himself. And so, so after Vi's heist, she accidentally causes his lab to blow up. And this explosion is like, kind of brings him to the attention of the city council. And when they find out what he's been doing, they basically want to exile him, forbid his experiments, like make sure that no one ever tries to combine science and magic again. But before that can happen, he joins forces with a character called Victor, more on him in a moment. And they successfully create a science magic fusion called Hextech. So basically, Jace's plotline is all about whether or not creating Hextech is worth it, since it has the potential to make many people's lives better, but also has really destructive capabilities. And in the other two acts, after successfully creating Hextech, the city has been completely transformed by it. I really love the montage at the beginning of Act 2 that kind of shows how much Piltover has been altered since this time skip, and Jace is a beloved public figure because of what he's been able to do. Like, the council has done a complete 180 on their opinion of science and magic, and is like, we love Jace Talos, we embrace him in his adventures, he's the best thing that ever happened to us. As a result of this, he also gets drawn into politics, which does not go well. My take on Jace Talos and his storyline in Arcane Season 1 is that just because a man has a nice jaw and can deliver a speech well does not mean he is actually a born politician because he gets so distracted by the potential good that Hextech can do that he'll pretty much do anything to keep the power to keep working on his experiments including basically doing this Julius Caesar speedrun takeover of the council so he literally goes from you know a university student who's about to be exiled to the council towards becoming kind of single-handedly in charge of the council all because he really just wants to keep working on his science experiments and is kind of willing to plow his way through the established authorial system of Piltover and like basically become single-handedly a leader of everything just so he can continue his own experiments. He really went from, I don't think I'm suited to politics towards taking over the entire council of Piltover in a week. 
which it's pretty wild. I am really intrigued to see where his character spotlight will go in the future because I think he easily could have been a villain, but it doesn't really seem like he's going that way. Like he genuinely only wants to use Hextech to help people's lives. And his conflict is that like, he kind of refuses to understand the destructive capabilities or like why other people have wanted to slow down his inventions or not try certain parts of the magic science combination. So like, he's just really fixated on this idea of using Hextech to do good, but in the process of doing this, he does some bad things. So like, it's kind of interesting to see whether or not he'll keep doing that or to like realize the path he's on might lead somewhere dangerous. I just find this like, intersection of science and magic super interesting as well as the way that the characters respond to it because there are some people who are really afraid of Hextech and some people like Jace who are so fixated on the good that it can do that they completely ignore the harm. Exactly. He's so focused on possible applications of Hextech that he then kind of ignores the ramifications or what it takes to continue his experiments. So he is an interesting character. I think this show is very good at having characters who do not neatly fit into good or bad. Like Jace does some pretty extreme things over the course of the show. And I would say he goes to some pretty dark places, but on the same kind of time, he also is just doing it because he wants to help people and is always somewhat aware that he doesn't really want this power to corrupt him, but also he's not so good at controlling what everyone else does, which probably leads us to the next character pretty well, which is Victor. So Victor is our other resident mad scientist and lab partner of Jace. I am rather fond of him and I think he only deserves good things, but unfortunately he is not going to get them. Can I just say he is so, so, so predictably your type of character. There is this one specific archetype of character that Pi really enjoys, which I call nerd behaving badly, which is a character who is intelligent, maybe kind of well-spoken, very intellectual, who also has like this inner ability to go kind of bonkers and off the wall and become really violent. I would say another example of that type of character is Percy DiRolo from Critical Role, who seems like a very stuffy, buttoned-up aristocrat until he suddenly has become possessed by a revenge-seeking smoke demon. And Victor is kind of a similar character in that he is a scientist, but also um, goes to some rather dark places over the course of this show. I think you pretty much managed to articulate why I enjoy the nerds behaving badly archetype. I would say that Jinx definitely also fits in that because she uses all of her like vast scientific ability to create bombs, which is bad. Jinx don't do that. But anyway, so back to Victor. Unlike Jace, Victor is from the Undercity and has therefore had to struggle a lot in order to get into the position that he has in his life because people in Piltover are like pretty biased against Undercity people. Even Jace was a bit where he's like, oh, we can't trust people from the Undercity. And Victor's like, I'm from the Undercity. And Jace is like, oh yeah, right. So basically Victor, it's his breakthrough that allows Hextech to finally function, but he basically prefers to remain in the lab doing more experiments rather than giving speeches or being involved in politics, which Honestly, big mood and like considering how this is going for Jay is probably a good idea. I also think it's kind of fun that Victor has kind of an Eastern European accent because I am very tired of fantasy shows where everyone is just like British all the time. I did enjoy the range of accents in this show as well because Piltover slash Zone is kind of this big melting pot cultural hub trading port city. It really makes sense to have characters from a variety of cultural and linguistic backgrounds. So like you said, Victor seems to maybe be like Russian or otherwise Eastern European. Jace, I think, is Latino. Other characters are like 
British or Australian or Iranian. And I just enjoyed that. I know a lot of the actors had their native accents, which I think is just like kind of more interesting and helps distinguish them and kind of establish that this is a city where a lot of people come from different places. I don't think Victor's actor is using his natural accent, but like a good number of other characters are. And I just sort of like the variety of that. Unfortunately, as Victor learns over the course of the show, his childhood in the Undercity has severely affected his health and he has a terminal illness that will kill him sooner rather than later. And so he turns to Hextech and technology in order to try to find some way to either transform or heal himself, which as you can expect, leads to some uh, interesting places. My personal pro tip from watching this TV show is that if your magic science experiment starts feeding on blood, it's time to give that a rest actually. I feel like, unlike Chase, it's very possible that Victor is going to become a villain in later seasons. I think he's definitely being set up in a way where that could go, but I also definitely understand his motivation of not wanting to die. So, you know, he might be evil, but it's coming from an understandable place. He's going to become a robot, I think, or like, that's what I've heard people talking about in the video game. It's a little unclear exactly where he's headed in the show, but he's definitely willing to use Hextech to do some extreme stuff in order to try to heal himself. I also thought that the TV show explores some interesting stuff about class divides in his character due to him being someone from the Undercity who lives in Piltover. And like he's had to work very hard to get where he is and get an education. But before he met Jace, he said that he was probably only going to be relegated to being a lab assistant and like never actually doing his own experiments. So he's a character who's like worked really hard and has managed to achieve a place for himself in life only like his childhood in the inner city has kind of come back to haunt him in the form of his chronic illness so like victor might be he might become evil but i think it's understandable why he would do that because his motivation of not wanting to die and using hextech in various ways to try to stop that from happening is like very clearly spelled out throughout the show He's interesting to me because he's somewhat different from the usual mad scientist character i feel like you might usually encounter. Like one obvious example is Victor Frankenstein. They are both mad scientists and they're both named Victor, but I think Victor with AK from Arcane is kind of different from your usual mad scientist archetype because he is kind of awkward and obsessed with his work. Like he basically sleeps in the lab and he like is obsessed with kind of bringing forth the dream of Hextech, but he does this because he's deeply compassionate and he's driven by a desire to help the people of the Undercity instead of just like, evil science. Like he's doing this because he's compassionate and wants to help people because he understands what it's like to live a life in the Undercity and suffer because of it and like not be able to escape the long-term health effects. And I think like Jace, he's a good example of characters not exactly being easily sortable into good or evil because certainly Victor goes to some extreme places over the course of the show in terms of his experiments, one of which has like an actual genuine casualty, but not all of it's intentional and he comes from a place of wanting to do good. So I don't know, he might become a villain, but I really don't want him to because I feel like he's much more interesting in this gray space of someone who cares, but because he's one of the few people who cares, kind of feels like he has to go to such extremes to make his dream come true. Like you said, Victor has a pretty similar motivation to Jace, but unlike Jace, he basically has like a ticking clock on how fast they can get the Hextech to help people because he's going to die soon. And unlike Jace, he doesn't have the luxury of taking like a few years to work on his experiments and like see how they work and what the side effects are. So I think it's 
I feel like he could end up becoming a villain, but I sort of hope he doesn't. And like, even if he does, it's very easy to like understand the motivation that he has that would drive him to doing bad things. Like he does do some experiments that are kind of weird. And one of them does have, you know, a body count, but it's also, you know, he might be doing these things because he feels like it's the only way that he can survive. So like, I just think he's an interesting character. On the topic of characters that we think are interesting, which is actually pretty much everyone in the cast of Arcane. There is also Mel Medarda, who is another character that Jace and Victor encounter while doing mad scientist shenanigans in Piltover. I feel like I should mention that my note underneath her name just says girl boss of my heart heart emoji because I do love her and she is like very politically savvy and cool. She is one of the younger members of Piltover's council and she's very ambitious and also kind of the only one who sees and wants the potential of Jace's Hextech. Also, she has a very cool character design. Like, it is just such a gorgeous collection of pixels. But also, beneath that nice collection of pixels is a very complicated character, which is great. Yeah, I love Mel. She's definitely one of the most complex characters in the show. And I also love the evolution of the way that we perceive her character. Because at first, it seems that she wants to use Hextech for bad purposes. And that maybe she's like driving to support Jace because she wants to use Hextech to like kill people or like support her rise to power or something really bad like that. And then we actually learn that like, no, she's actually one of the few people in the city who is totally dedicated to not using it for bad things. And this is due to growing up in a foreign city and raised by a family who considered violence to be acceptable in politics, while Mel did not. I think the insight that we get into her character when we meet her mother in later episodes is really interesting. Because at first, when you meet Mel, you might think that she is a pretty ruthless politician because she knows the lay of the land. She's not afraid to kind of say it like it is to Jace and help him on his rise to power. But then we meet her mother. And in contrast, we learn that Mel is actually very compassionate and merciful in comparison to the rest of her family, because her mother comes from this warrior culture kind of place where you can't show weakness and you have to be absolute when punishing your enemies. And Mel is like, no, actually, I I want mercy. I want to be a good person. And I don't want to use harsh methods, even if I'm dealing with bad things. So I think it's very good of this show to have a character who is allowed to exist in these shades of gray and kind of subvert your expectations because you encounter someone who's a very politically savvy member of an incredibly powerful authority in a very privileged part of the city and you're like oh okay so maybe she doesn't have people's best interests at heart but then she genuinely does and I'm, I'm just very curious to see where she goes in future seasons because I think that she has some very strict principles but she is also very aware of the reality of the world around her. I really enjoyed the way that the show kind of peels back the layers of Mel to reveal the principles that guide her and the past that shaped her into the person that she is. Because when you first meet her, it does seem like she's kind of like a potentially evil or at least dangerous politician lady. And then we eventually learn that she actually does have these like really strong moral principles and that she is very dedicated to not using Hextech for bad purposes. And I just, I really loved the way that this show kind of explores gray characters. And Mel is definitely an awesome example of that. She is kind of more of a put poison in their wine type of politician than a publicly assassinate them type of politician, which was also just enjoyable to watch the way that she interacts with other characters. Like she has a romance with Chase, which I do think possibly uh, in her 
possibly started from a place of wanting to like be close to the guy who created Hextech and have some influence over him. But I do think that she developed like genuine feelings for him over the course of the show and kind of like shares his ideals about not using Hextech for violent purposes. And I just, I love crafty politician women, okay? She's so cool. I like her too. Though it's interesting you say that she would put poison in people's wine because I think she's not even the kind of person who would put poison in someone's wine, but make sure that they have access to like their specific semi-illegal vintage of wine just so they are like more likely to vote towards her on the council. So I think she is against like capital punishment and being really harsh, but that doesn't mean that she's against kind of manipulation and swaying people towards her through other means like there's one scene when she and Jay I think are at the opera and she's just like pointing out various people being like that's how I get that person on my side that's how I get that person on my side that's how I get my that person on my side and that's how I like sort of pull the string secretly so she might not be someone who wants to resort to violence or like very harshly punishing people who are against her she's much more of a sneaky person she reminds me a bit of Max from Black Sails actually Actually, no, you're right. There's definitely some similarities between those two. I'm really interested to see where Mel will go in future seasons. Fingers crossed she'll be in future seasons. And I think that she can have a really interesting plotline about defending Hextech, but also keeping people from using it for bad purposes. So like, I hope we'll get that story with her. So the next character to mention is Echo, who is a childhood friend of Vi and Powder, who is present in Act 1 as a kid, disappears for most of Act 2, and then appears again in Act 3 as the leader of the Firelights, which is a rebel group that is trying to stop the crime lord Silco and improve lives in the Undercity. I respect Echo because he is literally the only character in this show who took his childhood trauma and was like, I am going to use this to build a better world so this never happens to anyone else. I am not going to use like dubious magical technology to do it. I'm just going to like create community. I'm also a big fan of masked vigilantes causing problems for bad guys. I think that's fun. Also, he has the coolest, but also the most emotionally wrenching fight scene with the Jinx. It's great. I am very curious to see where he goes in season two, because I really want him and Jinx to become arch enemies. I love it when characters were close as children and now are like on opposing sides and have very different conflicts and methods and Jinx and Echo are definitely being set up like that. He comes in a bit later in the show than other characters, but in the meantime, he's kind of been out there building this safe community in the Undercity. And he's also kind of a parallel towards Silco, who I think we'll talk about in a little bit, in that I think he is carving out his own space in the Undercity, but he's not using violence or threats. He's just kind of being a genuinely good person and trying to make somewhere safe for people to live so they don't have to go through the same kind of things that he did as a kid. I respect that. Sometimes it's good in a show where everyone is on kind of a spectrum of moral grayness and extreme methods to have someone who's just like genuinely a straight up good person and not trying to do dubious things with magical technology. And I think Echo kind of fits as like the guy who is good and also not doing somewhat shady things to support that good. We don't see a ton of him in Act 3, but I'm very curious to see where he could go in Season 2. And like you, I hope that he and Jinx become arch enemies, because I think there could be some great content there of just like, we were childhood friends, and now we hate each other and have like opposing morals. There's like so much you could do with that that I really think could be compelling. On the topic of characters, you have opposing morals with people who are protagonists of this show. <laughs> which is also kind of everyone in the show. Anyway, I was supposed to try to segue into talking about Caitlyn through that. So Caitlyn is an enforcer, which is basically like a police officer or detective, 
from the upper levels of Piltover. She is from a very privileged family, but has kind of chosen to seek out this more hands-on work to kind of keep peace in the city instead of just marrying well or being a politician. Uh, <laughs> I think that she and Vi have a lot of romantic tension, but also they are very politically at odds because Caitlin is literally a part of the ruling class and specifically the enforcer group that has kind of oppressed Vi's community and led to the death of her parents, which is kind of like a right person, wrong time, and also wrong job kind of romantic interaction. I really want Caitlin to quit her job in corrupt law enforcement and become a vigilante in season two. If Renee Montoya from DC Comics can do it, I think Caitlin can do it too. I think Caitlin could learn a lot of things from Renee Montoya, starting with vigilante tendencies and following up with getting a girlfriend. I do think that Caitlin also has some like strong lesbian vibes going on there. Like she's quite good friends with Jace Tallis because her parents have sponsored his research. And I feel like her mom is low key trying to set her up with Jace over the course of this season. And Caitlin is just like completely oblivious to it. She's oblivious to a couple things, I think, because she, like you said, is a rich girl from the upper class ruling group of Piltover. But she has a lot of very naive tendencies at the beginning of the show and seems uh, ignorant of a lot of the worst things that Piltover does. Like she became an enforcer apparently because she wanted to help people and solve crimes and is unaware of the fact that a lot of people in the enforcers, including her own boss, are like morally corrupt and bad cops and are just like working with the bad guys. So like I really do hope that she kind of realizes that like maybe working as an enforcer is actually being one of the oppressor is being one of the oppressors and not helping people because she's an interesting character, but she's definitely very naive to the way that things work in the real world and is convinced that like she can help people by being an enforcer, even though the show makes it pretty clear that the enforcers are not the good guys. I think she's another example of a character who is trying to do good, but is maybe not using the best methods, which is why it makes so much sense that she is introduced as Jace's friend because I think both of them want to do good, but because they are from the upper levels of Piltover, they're kind of unable to see the realities of what life is like in the Undercity and how the fact that their life in Piltover is kind of what contributes to the bad stuff in the Undercity. I think they're definitely intentional parallels, so it makes sense that they're introduced as friends. And I feel like they yeah. might go in very different places or they might go in very similar ones, and it will be interesting to see where that goes. Yeah, when Caitlin and Vi go down to the Undercity in the later parts of the show to try to kind of solve a mystery and find Jinx. Caitlin is like visibly very shocked by the living conditions in the Undercity. So like it's clear that she doesn't really understand everything that's going on in her city. But maybe now that she does, we can hope that she'll actually do something to change that instead of like being a cop. But we'll see. Only time will tell. And now at long last, we have gotten through our list of characters to talk about one of the more interesting relationships in this show, which is between Silco and Jinx. We mentioned at the very start that Vi and Jinx were raised by a crime lord named Vander, and then after the whole thing with the explosive, Jinx was taken in by Silco, who is a crime lord and close friend turned extremely bitter rival of Vander. Specifically, Vander and Silco were extremely close friends. Like, I think they basically considered each other to be brothers, and they were, like, working uh, on the rebellion against Piltover together when they were young men. And I believe Vander eventually decided that Silco was a threat to his power and attempted to kill him. And Silco survived this murder attempt, but like 
deeply scarred by it both physically and mentally and like is heavily betrayed by Vander and has basically spent his life since then plotting to try to take down Vander so he has like this whole complicated backstory that is revealed over the course of the show but also is kind of basically Jinx's adopted dad. Yeah Silco takes Jinx in and raises her after the first act and they end up having this really intriguing and deeply messed up father-daughter relationship because after being betrayed by Vander, Silco really genuinely believes that you can't trust anyone, and he really continually homer, um, and he really continually hammers this message into Jinx while raising her as basically this kind of mad scientist, bomb builder, lackey for him. And to be clear and upfront, I think Silco is an awful person, and his parenting of Jinx has essentially been him enabling her bad side and consistently leading her down a darker and darker path. But I find that relationship fascinating because he does seem to genuinely care about Jinx, but because he is such a messed up person, he can't care about her in a normal way. So his love for her is this very toxic thing. Yes, the thing about Silco is that he is an awful parent, but he's under the impression that he's a good parent. And not like in the abusive parent, like this is for your own good way. He like honestly does think that the unhealthy ways that he copes with trauma and betrayal that he's tra- that he's taught Jinx are good strategies because that's how he dealt with Vander's betrayal. So he really does think that like he is looking out for Jinx and being the best possible person to take care of her. And like he loves her, but because he himself is like a toxic unhealthy person his love for her is equally toxic and bad for both of them so it's just like this fascinating relationship of these incredibly messed up people who genuinely care about each other but the but the kind of love that they have for each other is not good because they are not good and he really does care about her and maybe even more than the power he's been accumulating over the course of the show because there's this one moment where he is offered all the power he wants essentially to turn the Undercity into its own autonomous entity separate from Piltover in exchange for giving Jinx to the Piltover authorities. And he tells Jinx that he never would have done it because he cares about her, which is so fascinating because all he has wanted throughout this show is to be powerful and to be a crime lord who rules over the city and for the place he rules to be basically separate from Piltover. But when he's given that opportunity in exchange for one thing, just for Jinx, he can't do it because he genuinely cares about her. God, that scene hurt me so much because when Silka was offered these terms, it's by someone who doesn't know his connection to Jinx or the fact that he raised her. They just want Jinx so they can arrest her because blowing up buildings in Piltover is a, you know, not seems a good thing about the authorities there. And so they have no idea that Silko cares about Jinx but he really does. And so he can't bring himself to give her up to the authorities. That's this really good part where he's just like sitting and drinking and talking to, I think it's a statue of Vander actually. And he says the line, is there anything so undoing as a daughter? Which is, I would honestly say it's the thesis of this show because parent-child relationships is such a big theme. Like Silco is a bad person and he's done a lot of bad things to many people, but his love for Jinx like is real and genuine. And he honestly can't bring himself to achieve all of his goals if it means abandoning Jinx. And it's just, it's such a good and interesting relationship. Not good as in healthy, but good as in like well-written and compelling. Exactly. Because there are these moments where you see that Silco genuinely cares about his adopted daughter, not as just kind of a lackey or as a tool because he tries to impart what he sees as valuable life lessons into her, even though they're really messed up ones. And he defends her against people working for him who say that she's a loose cannon because Jinx is kind of incapable of 
following orders and minimizing casualties when she's out doing his work. And then there's even moments where he trusts her to apply medicine to his scars on his eye. And he's, he just does actually care about her, but he is also a bad person, so he can't care about her in a healthy way. But there's just these details sprinkled throughout the show showing us that, like, he doesn't care about her as a tool. He cares about her as a person, but he's not really good at caring about people. Like, one little noted thing I noticed is that the ashtray in his office is literally decorated with some of Jinx's graffiti, which felt like a fatherly detail to me. But Jinx's graffiti is also what she puts on her bombs that she blows up the city with. And he's not like, hey, adopted daughter, maybe you shouldn't go around blowing things up. He's just like, great, build me another bomb. Uh, yeah, I did notice the ashtray detail. It feels very fatherly. I really enjoy that Silco is introduced as this terrifying, emotionless villain who like kidnaps Vander and is plotting against him and like has all these evil plans, but he is gradually revealed to be a character that has a lot of depth and understandable motivations, even if he is a very awful, evil person, it's really well done. And it's especially interesting because his love for Jinx is not a redemptive thing. It's still a very toxic kind of love. And just because he has a child of his own does not mean that he is above threatening other people's children. Like there is a scene where he like goes to someone's house and like threatens their kid if they don't do what he wants them to. So he hasn't like learned an important lesson about like love or treating other people better. He just, he cares about Jinx and only Jinx and no one else. My thoughts on this is that I think Jinx and Silco versus Jinx and Vi are kind of an exploration of what unconditional love is. Silco unconditionally loves Jinx and that means that he excuses and enables her really bad behavior like being reckless and killing people. And he also teaches her that they're the only people the two of them can rely on, that everyone else will betray them. And Jinx believes him because her sister, who should stand by her, left her. And she thinks that her sister has been intentionally avoiding her for all of these years. And I think that he's also basically tailored to be the worst possible person in the world to take Jinx in after all the bad stuff happens at the end of the first act, because he doesn't treat her like a kid by protecting her. And that's something that she really chaffs at in the first act. And he sees her as useful, so he encourages her down a worse path. And so as a result of being raised by Silco for some formative years, I think Jinx then grows up with this idea that unconditional love and familial love means, first of all, that the person who loves you loves only you, and also is completely uncritical of you, rather than wanting you to be the best version of yourself and improve yourself. And when Jinx and Vi meet after the time skip, Vi doesn't meet those requirements because she also cares about Kate and Jinx is kind of jealous about that because she's like wait okay first of all she's an enforcer and second of all you love an enforcer and you don't care about just me and also Vi wants Jinx to stop killing people and become a better person and I think Jinx is like okay well Silco loves me and only me and Silco lets me do whatever I want whereas you have other important relationships in your life and you want me to change my behavior and improve myself so therefore you don't really love me but I think it's because Silco has taught her this incredibly messed up idea of what it means to unconditionally love a family member and it's just fascinatingly terrible because it's like they're two very terrible puzzle pieces that slotted together to create a very awful unfortunate relationship but like it's a very interesting one that is kind of at the heart of Jinx's growth throughout the show. That was such an articulate analysis of those characters I don't know what else I have to say. 
I will say uh, by the end of the first season of the show, Silco is dead. So I don't think that we'll be seeing him in future seasons, but I think his relationship with Jinx will still have a lot of impact on her going forward because she was raised by him for, as you said, several formative years. And she also is the one who kills him entirely by accident. We'll get into this a little bit later, but like that's the kind of thing that I think would have a really big impact on Jinx. I did not see his death coming at all. It was incredibly shocking at first. And I was like, whoa, what do you mean Silico's dead? I can't believe this happened. And then I sat down and kind of thought about it. And I realized that it's really actually kind of inevitable that Jinx would end up hurting Silco at some point because the coping mechanisms that he taught her involved having to hurt other people. And so it's basically inevitable that at some point she would hurt him. So it's this like incredibly shocking moment where uh, Jinx has like this uh, PTSD flashback because she is really haunted by the deaths that she caused and like frequently has PTSD flashbacks for this and she kind of lashes out against Silco in this moment of remembering her past trauma and accidentally kills him and it's an incredibly shocking and like distressing moment but it's also something that we've seen her do before we've seen her like accidentally hurt people because she is suddenly remembering something awful that happened to her in the past and so like the fact that this happens to Silco is like not that surprising if you consider the kind of person that he's raised her to be. It's just like, it's such an interestingly toxic relationship in that he taught her to be the person that eventually kills him. And there's so much going on there. I think we'll actually talk about the actual death scene a little bit more in depth later, but it's just like, there's so much going on there. It's all so rich and interesting to talk about. It feels very much like a continuation of the stuff you were talking about earlier about how all of the tragic stuff that happens in this show feels very inevitable because it is kind of inevitable that Jinx would turn on Silco because Silco is the one who enabled her to become Jinx in the first place. And he's turned her into a weapon, but she's also a complete loose cannon. And at some point she's going to hurt him. So yeah, it, it was like shocking for her to kill him. But also once you think about it, you're like, no, it really couldn't have gone any other way. On the kind of more critical note, one thing where I think this show really falters is the portrayal of disability. And this is related to Jinx and Silco as characters, which is why I wanted to kind of segue into that after talking about their relationship. Because when Silco first came onto the screen and he had a lot of really visible facial scarring, which we learn is kind of leftover from Vander's attempt to kill him years ago, I was kind of like, hmm, this might not be great because villains with facial differences is really an existing trope in visual media. Like some examples I could think of are the first Wonder Woman movie has Dr. Poison who wears a mask because she's like very scarred underneath it. A lot of James Bond movies have villains with some kind of facial difference, Phantom of the Opera. It, it's kind of like a thing in media and it's not great because it's stigmatizing for real people with facial differences, whether it's something you're born with or something that you acquire like a scar. And the thing is, in this show, it's also kind of a larger trend beyond Silco, and it became really clear to me when we're introduced to the other members of Silco's inner circle that this show maybe has somewhat of a problem, because Silco has scars all over one side of his face and something up, something is up with one of his eyes, not exactly sure what, but then his secondary enforcer, Savika, has a prosthetic arm, and then there's this crime lord named Finn who has a prosthetic jaw, and another crime lord named Rennie who has a prosthetic nose, and they're all antagonists. And it's hard not to see that and be like, are we kind of using disability as a visual language to indicate that you're a bad person? Especially because Jinx is also very clearly mentally ill. I think if we were to use real world terms, I would maybe hazard a guess that she has something like PTSD or psychosis or schizophrenia because she has these very traumatic flashbacks to the past 
but also has these kind of visual and auditory hallucinations. And I've heard that her portrayal in this show is more nuanced than in the video games because it's more about how Jinx's trauma turned her into this person, not just like, whoa, she's so weird and crazy. But it's still a bit of a trope, especially because she often lashes out and hurts people because of these flashbacks. And then there's Victor, who is a more sympathetic character and is also disabled, in that he he walks with a limp and he uses a crutch and back brace and also has this terminal illness that is slowly killing him. But he's also apparently a villain in the video game, so that might be another disabled villain character. And it's true that there are certainly morally ambiguous or evil characters in the show who are not disabled. Like I would say, a lot of characters in Piltover are kind of morally gray to some degree, and also Caitlin's boss is engaging in police corruption. But I think when most or all of the disabled characters in a piece of media lean towards the villainous side of things, especially when they're like, they have something very noticeable about their disability, that might be kind of noticeable in a negative way. And with, I think within the show, the explanation is supposed to be that life in Zown is really tough and can lead to characters acquiring disabilities because Victor's terminal illness is directly and explicitly linked to the conditions he grew up in, in the Undercity. But I think it's kind of notable that some of the more heroic characters from the lower city like Echo and Vi are not disabled in the same way. So the implication just kind of ends up being that the disabled characters are the morally ambiguous or evil characters. And it was just kind of a trend I was picking up by the end of the show that I thought was not great because I've seen it echoed in other pieces of media and like read critical pieces being like, this isn't a great trend because it's stigmatizing. And I think it would be cool if future seasons of this show had more nuanced portrayals of, dis of disability. I still like many aspects of the show and I'm not really able to actually definitively give an analysis of their portrayal of disability because it's not something that I have a personal background in. And I think it is okay to enjoy things that have some problems, but I also didn't really want to sweep this issue under the carpet or unreservedly praise this show because when the scene of Silco meeting with his other crime lords happened, I was like, huh, this kind of seems like it's falling into a negative trope that I've heard about. And this is a very blatant, obvious example of that trope. I very much agree with everything that you were saying. I do think that the show does have somewhat of a problem with disability representation. And like, to be clear, I, I love Arcane. This is like one of the best shows that I've ever seen, I think, but, or at least a favorite show right now. But I also think that we should not be completely uncritical of the things that we love and we should acknowledge when there are problems in them in the form of, for example, all of the disabled characters in your show are villains. And I do think in the case of Jinx, from what I understand, the creators of the show somewhat had their hands tied due to the portrayal of her in the video game, which I think is a kind of like Harley Quinn-esque, like, ooh, she's crazy and weird and fun kind of thing, which is, you know, not always a great way to portray a character. And so in the show, I think they were intending to explain why she has such erratic and strange behavior such as showing that like a lot of her strange behavior comes from the result of having auditory and visual hallucinations of the people that she accidentally kills the child but it is true that she is a villain like she's a morally gray character but she is definitely portrayed as a bad person and she also works for Silco who is a uh, visibly scarred character so like there is kind of this problem that like if you're trying to show that life in the undercity is like dangerous and um, unsafe people by showing that there is a higher percentage of disabled people in the undercity then you might want to actually show good characters who are disabled like if the intention is to show how much more dangerous their way of life is then all these characters who are disabled shouldn't have been villains and yeah it's it's definitely especially obvious in the scenes with 
Silco's enforcers. Like, I think Savika is a really cool character and her prosthetic arm is super badass looking, but she definitely does fall into like the portrayal of like this character is disabled and also evil. And we're using like the way that she's like visually different looking to like kind of signal that she's evil and that's not good. And like Jinx is not portrayed as evil strictly because she is mentally ill. I would say it's more like she has extremely bad coping mechanisms for her trauma. And I have encountered media where someone's like, this character is mad and that means they're evil and that's always just very gross but it is definitely something that I think should be discussed and not ignored because I do love this show but like that doesn't mean that I can't be critical of stuff in it I mean it's also something they could improve on in future seasons I don't know if they're planning on adding other characters because I don't know if the cast of characters in the first season is like everyone from the video games or if they've added any original characters or stuff like that but it could be possible to like balance the scales a little bit more by having a character from the Undercity who is not a power-hungry, ruthless villain and has some kind of visible disability like a missing nose or facial scarring. So like, I think the show just fell into this trope that already exists, but because it is part of a larger trend, I just wanted to point it out as something that I personally think they could improve on. And I very much do think they could improve on if they wanted to, because a lot of characters in this show are existing creations from the League of Legends video game, but not all of them are. Silco is apparently a completely original character, and he's like a compelling and fascinating and well-written character who is very integral to the plot of this show, despite not existing and never being mentioned in the video game. So like, if they want to include more original characters, they very much can do that going forward. Also, I just wanted to repeat again that this is something that I think but I am not really an expert on disability. I'm not someone who deals with that, especially something more visible like the characters in this show have. So it's totally possible there are people out there who completely disagree with me and have life experiences that are more representative of the characters in this show. Like if you're out there and you're like, I relate to Victor and I love his portrayal and I'm not worried about him becoming a bad person. That's great, um, good for you. I just wanted to put a disclaimer there that this isn't me speaking from a personal position it's more of just like I have noticed this thing in other pieces of media that other people have talked about as being negative so maybe I'll like link an article to that or something in the show notes yeah I think we both thought this was just something that would be worthwhile to mention because it was a trend that we had noticed appearing in other pieces of media that also appeared in this one but like there are lots of people out there everyone has different opinions on things like that doesn't necessarily mean that we are like completely 100% right about what we're saying. It's just some thoughts that we had on the show. I think now that we have been coherent, we should be more incoherent and talk about the ending. And by talk, I just mean kind of scream because I'm so worried about what the second season of this show is going to be like after that ending. I am so worried. I am also in emotional agony. It has been like several weeks since I finished watching this show and I'm still in like deep emotional agony over it like it just like lives in the back of my brain that like the ending of the show actually happened and I had to watch it and deal with it a lot happened it's so much it's so wild I think it speaks to how strongly character driven this show is that the climax of the end of the first season is not like a big battle or anything it's actually Vi and Jinx having a conversation while Vi tries to convince Jinx to become her sister again and like we said like the sibling relationship is kind of the core of the show and I think this is really illustrated through the climax character relationships are once again valued over punchy battles and I kind of love it so the climax of the show is that Vi and Jinx have this conversation where Vi like tries to convince Jinx to you know stop being a bad person and like 
be her sister again and apologizes for abandoning her and Jinx is like very upset about this and like refuses to believe that Vi actually cares about her because of Lulu's very astute observation about what Jinx thinks unconditional love is. Jinx thinks that unconditional love is Silco saying you are perfect you don't need to change as opposed to Vi being like I love you but I don't recognize the kind of person that you've become and so Jinx refuses to become her sister, refuses to change, and accidentally kills Silco due to a traumatic flashback that happens like at that exact moment in a scene that deeply hurt me. And so Vi and Jinx have become like impossibly distant from each other and can like never reconcile. And then she also kills Silco. And it's it's so sad because she does really genuinely care about Silco. And it's, it's another moment of Jinx accidentally killing someone that she really does care about. And I think the last thing that Silco says to her is like, you're perfect. I never would have given you to them, which is so much, many things to think about. I, I am being incoherent right now, but I think I'm allowed to because we were coherent for the last few hours. Oh, and so I mentioned at the start of this episode that I don't like it when media ends on a cliffhanger. But what I mean by that is that I don't like it when people kind of cheaply throw a curveball of another storyline at you to make you go, oh, I wonder what's going to happen now that the first thing has been wrapped up. The cliffhanger of Arcane feels very much like it is a continuation of everything that has happened in the show previously. And you're like, yeah, well, of course this is all going to happen because we've seen Silco and Jinx's incredibly toxic relationship. We've seen Jinx descending into this place of villainy. We've seen Jinx and Vi kind of fail to return to what they once were. So it's not just like a things have resolved, but now, surprise, here's a hint of something else to come that you're dying to find out about. It really feels much more like things cannot be resolved easily. Instead, they're going to end in tragedy, but exactly how they're going to end is kind of what remains to be seen. So it didn't annoy me, even though I can be quite annoyed by cliffhangers. Yeah, so specifically the cliffhanger ending of this first season of Arcane is that after Jinx accidentally kills Silco and fails to reconcile with Vi and everything is terrible and all these character relationships and everything is tragic, she then proceeds to go blow up the council chamber of Piltover literally as they are drawing up the treaty to give down its independence. And so like, this is what Silco has worked for the entire season. He just wants the other city to be independent and also to rule it, but like also independence. And so it's at the exact moment that things are maybe going to start going right for the other city and that they'll no longer be like oppressed by Pillover that Jinx just like walks up and blows up the entire council chamber with like a giant magically enhanced gun. And then it ends like just like that. Like the explosion does not even properly happen. Like we do not know who lives or dies. We just know that like, this is the thing that she just did and it's going to have consequences that we don't even know they'll be. It is. It is so much. I think you can generally predict who might survive the explosion by who appears in the video game, which is set after the events of the show. But like, we still don't really know because it is kind of a prequel to the show, but they've also put their own spin on it and added their own characters and own backstory. And also, I don't know anything about League of Legends, so I can't really figure out how they would get from point A to point B because I don't really know what point B is. Actually, while I was sitting here watching the season finale of this, it reminded me of the TV show Black Sails a lot, which we mentioned earlier because we compared Mel to Max from Black Sails, who is one of my favorite characters on TV. But Black Sails is a... TV show that is technically a prequel to the novel Treasure Island, but also incorporates like real history from the golden age of piracy in the Caribbean and also their own characters. 
and Black Sails also has this kind of inevitable sense of tragedy and is very character driven because all of it has to get to this point of leading up to the events of Treasure Island. And we know that certain things have to happen, but not exactly how. And I kind of imagine this is like watching Black Sails as it was airing instead of watching all four seasons after the show was done and being like, you've got to get somewhere, but I don't know how you're going to get there. And I think it's going to hurt along the way. That's actually a very good comparison because I think that Black Sails and Arcane have similar kind of arcs of these characters striving to do something, but you know that they're doomed to fail because of where the characters are going to end up. Like in the video game League of Legends, from what I understand, Jinx is a villain. So this means that Vi will never redeem her sister and they'll never be reunited and she'll never convince her to be a better person. And like in Black Sails, like in history, the pirates did not like defeat the British Empire and create their own republic that lasted for like hundreds of years. You know that they'll have to fail at this. And so the whole thing in Arcane is like the characters have to end up in a place. And I think that the way the show is doing it is that the way that these characters end up in these places is through a tragedy. And in this case, the tragedy is that maybe things could have gone better for Zaun. Maybe they could have been separate from Piltover, but it didn't happen because the character who had been scheming to have that happen the entire time is dead. And the person that he tried to sacrifice all of his ambition to save just went and blew up the entire council chamber, meaning there'll definitely now be like open warfare between Piltover and Zaun and like everything is going to go badly for everyone now. It is. So there's like the hope of like a happy ending, which is like immediately tossed away by Jinx's actions. It's the best kind of tragedy that makes you see where things could have gone happily and also knowing that they never would have gone that way. Honestly, the tragic arc of this nine episodes of Arcane season one is so good that like I almost don't want a season two because like how can it possibly be as good as the arc of this one? But then I also do want a season two because I need to know what's going to happen. So like I'm we so conflicted. Need, we need a season two, not because we need the plot to continue, but just so Kate and Vi can kiss. Obviously. Yes, exactly. Very fair. I guess we'll just have to bide our time until season two and hope that maybe the body count is a little bit less. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll just bide my time and like try to convince my college professor that writing a paper about how Arcane is a tragedy as well done as Hamlet is a totally valid usage of my time. Not that I've done that, but I think I could do it pretty well. We'll just sit here and sadly listen to Imagine Dragons thinking about this TV show, which by the way, my least favorite part of this show is that it had me unironically listening to Imagine Dragons in the year of our Lord 2022, which I did not think was actually possible. Well, the thing about this show is that it's so good that I honestly did not mind that the theme, th that the theme song was Imagine Dragons, and I really feel like I can give no higher praise to any piece of media than that. And with that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you'd like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can find us on social media. We have a website, neverthetwinsshallmeet.com, and we're also on Twitter at nevertwinscast, Tumblr at neverthetwinsshallmeet.tumblr.com, and Instagram at neverthetwinsshallmeet.